Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're very welcome to our first live podcast, our first podcast in front of a live audience. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Full house, too. And... Uh, Pleasure to share with my good friend Timmy Long, and uh, uh, Rowan is not on the decks tonight, but he's here. So hi to Rowan as well, he's been a great help for us. And um, before we start, I just want to thank everybody for their support over the last 12 months. You know, 12 months ago, we did an arse from our elbows, we, we were going to start with a phone, and you know, we grew it over time with donations from yourselves and support, so thanks everybody. Thank you. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on our first guest for the live podcast. His name is Willie White and he's from Ballymun. Come on in, Willie. Good man, Will. <laughs> That's my boyfriend from Cork Prison. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah. Antoinette, we used to call him. Yeah. Anto to everyone else. Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> but um, pleasure to have you done, Willie. Thanks very much. Thank yeah. you, uh, everyone in Cork. It's great to be here. No, it's great and beautiful weather as well. So, um, well, I brought the sunshine with me. You did, fair play, yeah. <laughs> but listen to me. I know you and other people here will know you. But the people that don't know you, do you want to tell us a little about who you are and where you're from? Yeah, um, my name is... Uh, I feel like I'm on a dating show now. <laughs> 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 Hi, my name's Willie. <laughs> uh, my name is, is Willie Woy. Um, and I'm from, um, I'm from Ballymoon in Dublin. Um, born and reared in Ballymun. Come from a small family. I'm uh, I'm the tallest, I'm five foot seven. Um, growing up, growing up in Ballymun was uh, it was challenging to say the least. I can't. It was just me and my sister, my mother, my father, and my father was uh, was alcoholic. He was a drinker, um, and my mother was just kind of kind of. She was a homemaker, you know, and uh, there was a lot of lot of violence growing up in the home. Mm. So I came from, I came from trauma from an early age, you know, and kind of carried that through most of my life. So my father would have been very violent. Um, father had a decent job, mother had a decent job. We wanted for nothing, you know, every, everything at home. Like if you looked at us from the outside, we, we looked grand, like, you know. Um, but what went on behind closed doors was was completely different. There was a there was a lot of violence towards my mother from my father, and um, from a very young age, I I started using drugs. I started taking drugs, like you know. So in the beginning, it would have been solvents. Um, 
I think that's uh, very common, isn't it? Yeah. You know, for young people to start off with links and petrol well, I, and stuff I, like I, that. There was no links back then. Now when I was <laughs> old spice, <laughs> it it was brew and our tip back hoya karate and um, no. So yeah, it, it, it would have been you know inhaling gas and sniffing glue and tinners and and I. I took drugs from a very, very young age. I was taking drugs from probably about seven or eight years of age. But doesn't it make total sense if you're going up in a home where there's a lot of violence towards your mother, a lot of fear in the home, anxiety in the home? You're looking for an escape, even from the age of seven and eight. Well, that's that's exactly where it was, because you, you hear people saying a lot of times that, you know, when they take drugs or they drink, that they were out of their head. And, and that's what drugs done for me. Like, that's... From even that early age, it was an escape, and it used to get me out of my head from everything that went on at home, everything that I was dealing with as a kid. And I found that when I, when I took solvents, all the, the, the pressures and all the fears and everything that was going on at home, like even, even from a young age, the key turning in the door, I couldn't sleep when I knew my father was drinking because I knew what was going to come home like, do you know what I mean? And, and the fear for a child to have from a very, very early age, like, of, of just a key turning in the door and not knowing what was going to happen, like, you know. Do you know when you're a child, eight, nine, ten, what year are we talking in Ballymun? Oh, we're talking. Well, I moved, I, I, I lived in the inner city first, right in Temple Bar, a place called Crampton Billings. I was born in the Coom, like, like myself, yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good Dublin man we have here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was born, I was born in the Coom, then we moved to Ballymun. I, I was living in Ballymun from probably about three years of age, you know, so, so, Drugs, about start, started about seven or eight years of age, solvents. Like, mm. It was the older lads in the area. I always kind of looked up to the crazy kind of people when I, when I was younger, you know. I, I, if anyone was doing all the wrong type of things, it was kind of an escape for me, and that's what I wanted to do. So from kind of that age, you know, moving on from solvents to, to, to drink, I always had that addicted kind of streak in me, like, if I was going out with my mates and my mates were drinking four or five cans, I wanted six or seven cans. Mm. You know, I always wanted, when people were drinking two litres of soda, I used to drink three litres of soda. I used to get it in a box. There was a tap on it. It was like a cushion. And um, it was just always more and more and yeah, more, you know? We can definitely relate with that, isn't it? You know, like, yeah. the, when you start drinking, it was never like um, six cans and have mm. a laugh. It was always like six cans of bottle of vodka. It was always get flattened, yeah. you know? It, it, was, it was never drinking to enjoy. It was drinking to just pass out, black out, you know. Mm. Um, I would have had a similar upbringing as yourself. There would have been a lot of violence in the, the family home, you know, um, and solvents would have been the first thing I, I went at. It was nail varnish and tipex. We used to rob the local pawn, what was it, the pawn shop in Holly Hill. <laughs> the reading uh, right, remember yeah. the reading right. <laughs> and um, we'd go up, there was a, a field up, where we lived in Holly Hill and we'd go up there and we'd sniffing for the day. But our principal was so cute to what we'd be up to back then that he'd send somebody over to the house to see were we actually at home, you know, or were we sick or whatever. And I remember one day I came home, it wasn't bad enough, no, I had a load of nail varnish all over my lips from being sniffing the bag. Red or black? Yeah, I meant to pull on your nails. Red. <laughs> and uh, straight in the door anyway. And back then, <clears throat> listen, it, they were, they were different times, you know. I just looked straight in the door and I knew straight away that somebody was after calling to the house. And the principal would have been Sean O'Shea. Anybody yeah. remember Sean O'Shea? Yeah, you were a singer. Yeah. He's, a, he's still alive. Yeah, infamous. 
I thought a pupil would have most definitely killed him by now, anyway. Uh, he's a famous, a famous Irish singer, but he was the principal of the school up in Knocknahini, but he wasn't really liked. But we'll leave it at that and we'll go back to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, never heard of him no, no never. but you know in Ballymun at the time you no know, we had uh, Philly McMahon on the podcast before he's from Ballymun too yeah Philly uh, be a good mate of mine yeah. yeah he was saying like when he was a child growing up you know there was a lot of addiction antisocial behaviour he kind of veered away from it but you were attracted to it yeah, yeah I was attracted to the madness yeah I, I, like I just wanted a bit of you know a bit of madness in me like there was enough madness going on at home like you know mm. so I just kind of wanted an escape wherever it was whether it was robbing horses or Doing what, doing whatever, just to kind of get away from what was going on at home. I didn't want to be at home. I always went into my friends' houses and kind of went, I'd love to live here. Like, and, you know, I always wanted to be kind of somewhere else, but that, that was never the case. And growing up and getting older, school, you know, I, I was just a class clown in school. Like, it was never, I just hadn't got there, you know. And I, and I don't blame my mother and father for my education or anything like that. Um, but somewhere along the line, there was, there was something wrong at home that I couldn't fully commit to what was going on. Because, I mean, if your mother is getting beaten around till 3 o'clock in the morning, you're trying to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning to go to school, and your mum's not getting up because, you know, she's, she's broke up or whatever, it, it, it does have an impact, you know. So I, I'd have started drinking then probably at about 12 or 13 years of age. And it was grand because Christmas, a lot of people in Ballymoon used to keep their drink out on the balcony. So if you got, you know, you could get a ladder somewhere and get up onto the fourth floor. So there'd be a lot of people on the fourth floor who wouldn't be getting the drink that they thought they had on the fucking balcony, like you know. So a lot, a lot of drink, and then smoking weed, and going, going from there then into secondary school. I, I left school with no education at all whatsoever. I remember doing my intercert, and at the time, showing sure your age there now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> you used to get your results. It was written in pen, and me and my mate went back. <laughs> to my place and he says I've got a great idea and he put the two of them in the sink with bleach and he took all the results off them and we wrote all our own results in <laughs> and uh, <laughs> about October there was loads of letters coming to the house and I was hiding them before, behind the fire and my mother eventually found them and they got called up to the school and Jesus me dad bit the bleeding head off me you know so there was a lot of that going on as well with my sister and, and me and myself you know there's a lot of violence towards us as well we sometimes we getting beaten for for good reason, and then other times you kind of wouldn't like if you just, you know, depending sometimes mm. on how my dad was, you know. Have you got kids of your own today? I have, yeah. Can yeah. you imagine, like, um, and Timmy has kids, two wife dogs, but, but uh, same thing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but can you, you know, when you look at your kids and you think of like how you were treated as a child, and you would never imagine doing that to your own children, isn't it very hard to understand? Yeah, you know? it, it, it really is, and I mean, I, I look at my my kids when they were my age when I started taking solvents and that and I just can't comprehend you know or understand if, if any of my kids ever ended up up in that situation you know so yeah I left school with no education whatsoever went to London when I was 16 years of age and with a mate of mine and we, we lived in a squatting manor house there was a load of us there was a lot of drugs going on in, in, in the flat there was heroin and I was the only one that walked out a whole lot of them. I had a job, like, you know, which was kind of weird, you know, someone from Ballymoon having a fucking job. And then um, <laughs> we, you know, they, they done their own thing. Two of the lads that I, that I lived with over there ended up all day and they were a bit older than us and they, they got sent home in coffins. And so I knew the dangers of drugs. And then when I went to London, it was, 
the ecstasy scene was out, so there was a lot of people taking E's and, you know, I remember taking E for the first time and I thought it arrived, like, you know, mm. and all that, that love that I never got as a child, like, yeah. we were just starved of love and affection, like, there was, mm. and I, and I realised then in years later, I, I'm kind of going back and forward when I looked at my father's upbringing and I looked at my mother's upbringing, I realised why it, it wasn't happening where I was, you know. So I lived in London for a few years and then ended up taking too much LSD one time and got went on a bad trip and had drug psychosis and ended up in a psychiatric unit in London. What was that like? It was great crack. <laughs> <laughs> um, as much drugs as you fucking wanted. <laughs> It was like it was like me going to Thunderland after. <laughs> I know, yeah. No, it was it, it was a it, it was a very traumatic situation. Mm. Not only for me, but I was going down to my uncle's because I, I my dad's brother was always very good to me. But the day I went down to go to him, he was out of country, and um, I held his missus and my cousin and their friend hostage in the house for fucking three days. So um, it was very very heavy, mm. and. Um, can you remember? The woman, the woman isn't liked a lot, you know, by, by my family. And some of them are giving me money, like, um, fair play to you for putting up a hole for fucking three days, like, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was a horrible time. And, and I ended up getting took out of there by the police and ended up in a psychiatric unit, intensive care unit in, in Homerton, in London, for, for nearly seven months. Yeah. Do you know the psychosis? Can you remember when you were in it? Like, what you, what you were thinking, what it was like? Yeah, I can indeed, yeah. I, I thought. I thought that people had a plot out to kill me. That's what I thought was going on. And as I was making my way down to Clapton in East London, anyone that I seen that was in a phone box or that was talking to somebody, I thought it was all geared up around me to get me somewhere to have me assassinated. There was no such thing at all whatsoever. It was just, you know, a build-up of drugs that I'd been taking for a long time, smoking weed, taking loads of acid. And, and it was gonna, you know, the warning lights were on a long, long time, like... And, and I knew somewhere it was going to give, but Jesus, what a place was to give in London where, you know, mm. my mother or father wasn't there, my sister, who I was really, really close to. For the whole seven months I was there, she couldn't even come over to see me. Like, you know, it was just, I was in a bad way. I was on a lot of medication, Halperidol, Cogentyl, Lithium, Haldol, um, Loigactol. I was really, really mentally unstable. Ended up in seclusion rooms and padded cells and... Just kind of thinking to myself, I thought I was going to be in this place forever. Like, never mm. never knew I'd get out of it, you know? And you know when you got out of it, did you go home straight away? Fucking right, I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, straight never away. Never so happy to see Bally Montoro. Mm. What age were you then, Willie? I was, when I got home, I was about 19. Mm. And um, all my old so-called friends kind of abandoned me because I, I, I was really, really overweight and I was saying things that I shouldn't be saying and... I was just very, very mentally unstable. And I can understand when I look at it now, you know, I don't kind of go to cheekies, like, because it was just, it was just the way I was. It wasn't kind of cool to be around, like, you know. Um, and my sister, she, I stayed with my sister because my mother and father had split up at this time, you know. And she looked after me and she detoxed me off all the tablets that I was on. And I eventually got drug-free from all the tablets and then went back taking acid again and ended up in another psychiatric, ended up in the Dundrum, Psychiatric and intensive care unit That's again. That's the central mental hospital. Yeah, which really isn't in the central of Dublin. So I think they just do that to fuck your head up a little bit. 
So then I went from Dundrum to Vincent's on the Richmond Road. So I was in three psychiatric hospitals. So I suppose you could say it was a psyche hat trick. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's the best joke of the fucking night, to be honest with you. Um, but, um, do you know, one of the medications you referred to there was Lagactyl. I've heard of that being described as a pig fat now. Do you know, blow it out. Um, it was, and you said you come on with yeah, a lot of weight. It was, yeah, it was... It, uh, the, the amount of drugs that I was on, even when I ended up back in there for the third time, um, I think they just got the foils. I, mean, I don't think they really know what to be doing with you. Mm. Like, what do you do? Like, with, mm. So when I was, in, I was in this place and it was like, sometimes you kind of get, like the drugs I was on, I was on that much drugs. I remember two of my mates coming up and my mate says to me, what's the drugs like that you're on? And he says, I genuinely cannot feel anything. I'd know. Mm. feelings whatsoever and he says to me like what do you mean like and I was smoking a cigarette at the time and I says this is what I mean and I took a drag out of the cigarette and I pulled my top up and I put the cigarette out of my mm. stomach and I just flicked it on the ground and my two mates were like what the fuck is going on here but mm. that was just the level of Completely numbness numb. from from the drugs I was on you know do you know um, just being active in drug addiction back then did you really care about living or dying you know because if I was to refer no, back to my own no experience. I didn't I, I tried to hang myself in yeah. London um, in, the, in the psychiatric unit and one of the patients come in when I was kind of up on the window and that and they, they, they got me down and they they got me back together but there was there was times I, I could never really see that drugs was the problem in my life mm. I just kind of thought I was an unlucky kind of fella like that it was just taking the wrong drugs and being with the wrong people and just end up in the wrong situations. Like, I could never actually see that I had a drug problem. Um, so, so the third time when I got out and I eventually got off all them drugs again, I ended up getting into heroin and that, that was a... That was just a bleeding. That was a horrifying kind of time in my life. And I knew the damages of heroin and I knew what heroin done. And, you know, I, I was walking for two fellas doing it. it was basically a runaround. I was a ghillie for these two lads bringing stuff from from A to B, and, and, and I just ended up taking it one night, and then I took it the following day, and then I just kind of got into it, and they knew then I was strung out, and then everything just started going wrong in me life, you know, I started ending up in prisons, and swore I'd never use intravenously, you know, and then I ended up using intravenously, and mm. ended up stealing on my family, ended up homeless on the streets, um, ended up begging on the streets, um, I was going out with a girl at the time, and, and you know, he'd be trying to feed two habits and it was just a, it was just a nightmare. Every day was just like same thing, going into prison, trying to get clean. Then you get on a methadone maintenance mm. on a clinic. You'd be thinking, oh, I'm after arriving here, I've won the lottery, like, and that was never the case, like, you what know. What was it like inside Mountjoy? Um, because in Cork Prison would have been a relatively clean prison, you know, and a lot of dubs would come to Cork Prison to detox and dry out. What was it like in Mountjoy with, um, with the heroin and methadone and stuff? It was a kip. Um, Mount Joy, yeah. It was a horrible, horrible place. And um, the one thing I'll always remember about prison um, is the smell of the place. You know, that... I can't even describe it. You'd have to kind of know it. And to be on the land and to get that smell, to know what that smell is like, you know. But if someone put me into, room, into a room and, and had that smell there, I'd know, I'd know exactly what it was. And it was a horrible, horrible place. And I wasn't one of these gangsters or anything like that. I wasn't a tough guy or anything. Yeah. The only 
bit of armor I had for getting me out of trouble is that I was good crack, like, do you know what I mean? I was a bit of a laugh, like. And most of the times that got me stoned to be saying, bring him with us if I hadn't got anything. <laughs> um, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't there. Uh, someone that was going around knocking the bollocks out of people yeah. or that because most of the time I'd go into prison and I'd be like, right, okay, I'll practice a tough fucking walk for the next morning going out onto the landing. I'd be very, yeah. very scared and very, very frightened, you know? Mm. Because people think, a lot of people think, you know, that prison is a holiday camp, like, and I mean, it's, it's not a holiday camp. I don't know any fucking holiday camps that lock you up at half seven in the evening, shut the door, let you see our family members once a week. So it, it, it's, it takes away your freedom, and that's the punishment yeah. in itself. And it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter if you're um, a drug addict that's going in and out of prison like yourself, like I was, or if you're a top gangster. Mm -hmm. Everybody in there is afraid. Everybody in there is covering up some sort of anxiety. Everybody is on edge, hypervigilant, isn't it? Yeah, well, come here. <laughs> As I was said there a while ago, a fella said to me, look, we're all only one act away from going to prison. Like, mm. like one of us could go down to Patrick Street this evening, get into a row, give somebody a punch, they fall, they bang their head, they die. You go to jail, like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Un un unintentionally, like, you know? Mm. So um, I've seen lots of people come in. I, I was one of these fellas always in school and have always been through life that fucking hated people being bullied. Do you know what I mean? I didn't like bullies and I didn't like people kind of, you know, been made fools out of or whatever. So I just kind of had a soft side in me for people like that. And if someone come in that had never been in before, and like that, you just try kind of, you know, take them under your wing and just, you know, try to show them, you know, the right thing to do, you know, which is... I think one of the worst things in my experience in prison, one of the worst things is seeing fellas being bullied. There is a lot of it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's sometimes you're powerless, you know what I mean? You'd want to be interfering and then for fear that you'll be attacked afterwards. But I remember yeah. you know, certain situations you look at and you think, like, I wouldn't treat somebody mm -hmm. like that, you know? And but that's just, that's how it works in there. That's how some people get by, by, by yeah. act, acting like that. And that is, the reality of it is um, some people do get what they need or the bullying other people, particularly in prison, you know, where you have very vulnerable people coming in for the first time they might know anybody in the landing or anything like that. And there, it's like the bullies can smell the fear coming in the gate when they're walking down the corridor yeah. and they're just a targ. They have a target on their back. But that is just the reality of it. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry for laughing there. I'm just yeah. thinking of some incidents of fellas coming in where they'd be, they'd be getting the piss taken out of them more than the fucking the bullying. You know, he'd be sending fellas in to the governor's office saying, go in and see, can you walk the governor's dog? <laughs> up and down the North Circular Road. Do you know what I mean? And I'll go in for the bike race. There's a bike race on on Friday. And half these fucking ages to be going in, like, I'm in for the bike race, you know? Yeah. And they'd know in the office as well, you're going to be going, what type of bike are you looking for, like, you know? Yeah. Fucking idiots. But, but you, yeah. Do you know, you mentioned something there, well, I'm going a little bit curious about it because it just it, it relates to my own story. When you found heroin, you know, um, before that, you had a lot of psychiatric problems, you know. Your, yeah. Did the heroin, like, it the heroin took over all your emotions, feelings, thoughts, the whole lot. Yeah. Did the heroin knock everything else, all the psychiatric problems, to bear at that moment because you were completely addicted? So every thought you had is about your next score, how you're going to get it, this and that and the other. So did it give you a bit of space from all the psychiatric yeah, it did, but I mean, all I was really doing was substituting one drug for another, mm. like, you know, so it was like I parked up one car and I jumped into another mm. car, do you know what I mean? So I was still caught up in the drug problem, but yeah, yeah the, the the heroin kind of gave me that comfort and gave me that, uh, 
it gave me a way to be able to kind of deal. Well, at the end, at the end of my using with heroin, I was just taking the drug to kind of feel some kind of normality, like you mm. know, like. Look, I never wanted, when I was growing up, my hopes and ambitions weren't to be a drug a drug user or to be going to prison. I wanted to do different stuff, like, you know, I, I always had an aspiration to kind of be an entertainer and be on stage and, and do stuff like that. But when, when there's stuff going on at home that kind of puts things on pause like that, you, you take a different route. I know he was just one of them fellas that took a different route. And a lot of times along the way, I got moments of clarity where I said to myself, you know, I'd be using with people that I fucking hated. I'd be robbing, I'd be, I'd be doing whatever, you know? And I'd be going, I, I shouldn't be doing this. I, I, there's a bet, there's, there has to be a better way of life, you yeah. know? Yeah, when you were talking the other way ago about you not know, being attracted to the drama and the mad scenarios, um, remember Gabo Mata we had on the podcast? And, uh, yeah, I was listening Bess, to it van der Kolk, I think it was Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about um, you know, people that have been severely traumatised. Like, if you're in a house where mm. there's violence all the time inflicted on you, your mother, you're always on edge, that it's a coping skill subconsciously to you that your brain shuts down the part of the, the, part of the brain that mm. feels fair or, or feels anything, really. And then people that are severely traumatised, the only time they actually ever feel alive is when there's drama and when they're caught up in either um, dynamics with family or prison or violence or drugs. So, like, th your story is... Very common. It's related to us and people in the mm -hmm. audience. You know, so like people that are traumatized or people that have been through difficult experiences, and they still find themselves caught up in a cycle of it's very quiet, it's very dull, and then it's mad, and there's no, there's no kind of middle ground. Yeah. There's no happiness in between. Yeah, I, I don't know what it was with me. I just kind of restrained, uh, uh, refrained from the madness. I, mm. my father was a man that instilled an awful lot of fear into me from a very young age until. Even as an adult, like, I used to look at him and I used to know what this man was capable of. So I wasn't one of these fellas, like you talked about, that was into violence or was into madness. I just kind of had this thing. And I remember my mum always saying to me growing up, you know, never put your hands on a woman, like, do you know what I mean? Mm. And it's something that I've, I've, I don't think any woman deserves domestic abuse or, the, or deserves to be hit, not only by a man, but by, by another person, like, you know? We all deserve to get through life you know, with no drama, no violence or, mm. or anything like that. So I kind of, if, if madness happened or, or there was fighting or there was someone getting caught up in prison or something like that, I kind of stayed well away from it. Yeah. I didn't want any of it. I kind of found, um, James, that it, it kicked up stuff for me. Like, you know, it kind of brought stuff back and I could kind of see me dad mm. being, you know, and I don't say lightly the animal that he was when I was growing up, you know. So... But you know, even though like even though when you see a violent event, you're not drawn towards it. But the fact that you're actually in the proximity of a violent event is enough to make it like you're actually drawn to the prison in the first place. The fact that you were even yeah. in prison and you were in a situation where most of the audience here would never have seen anybody being sliced up. It's mm. only a very select few people would. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But the fact that you, even though when you seen it, you weren't drawn to it. I suppose the fact that you were in a situation where you're actually exposed to it is enough. To kind of fit with the theory, I suppose that they would say that people that are severely traumatized seek out these situations unbeknownst to themselves because yeah. it's the only time. It actually robs you, like, uh, it, it actually takes your whole childhood away from you, really, because you have to 
set yourself up for all these moments happening, you know, as you said earlier on there, you know, walking in the door when he comes in from the pub, you're probably, the minute you hear he's in the pub, your peace of mind is gone and you're waiting for the next four or five yeah. hours then for him to come home. I didn't have pub. to wait to hear he was in yeah. the pub. He was in the pub most nights, yeah. like, you know. Mm. I think the fucking person, there used to be a Shaw's in Ballymun, used to think that we were going to Greek weddings, that there was that much fucking Delph getting smashed every night of the week <laughs> in, the, in the house, like, you know. I, I, th- I think if microwaves had been back in the 80s when we were there, there'd have been less violence. My dad couldn't understand why a, a dinner was in the oven for nine hours wasn't fresh, like, do you know what mm. I mean? So there was, ju- there was just a lot of stuff. And then, like, I, I ended up getting into a lot of trouble with the guards. And then the last thing was I got caught with drugs and I ended up going on the run to London. And uh, I was still with this girl I was going out with at the time. She followed me over. I went over. Um, my dad was at the retired. My dad worked for Telecom Aaron at the time. And he gave me a few quid. And I ended up going to London. And that night, I spent all the money that he gave me smoking crack in King's Cross and then I went to my mum's the next morning and told my mum I got robbed and my mum says oh yeah hang on I land this helicopter and you can fucking tell me the rest of the story she knew what was going on you know yeah. and some of are just getting there it's okay <laughs> so <laughs> so that that have brought me on another journey I got on a maintenance methadone maintenance in London and then my partner come over and then it was just bedlam my mom moved in with a partner down the road and we used and abused my mom's home. We both got a crack cocaine habit. I was in the worst state I'd ever been before I got sent home. Um, I got extradited home from London. And I don't say that to sit here and kind of go, you know, I'm a gangster or like that. I'm not. I'm very, very far from that. But I got extradited home. And at the time I got extradited home, I was living in a car over in London. That's... That's how glamorous my, my drug using was. Um, most of my teeth were gone in my head. Um, I think the most embarrassing thing about the whole lot of it was is that when I got nicked that day by the English police, I was wearing my ex-girlfriend's tracksuit bottoms, which had a fucking flower on the pocket of them. So <laughs> it was horrible sitting waiting to go into Brixton Prison. All I was worried about was the flower on the tracksuit bottoms. I thought- and I just kept sitting with my hand like this <laughs> over the flower. And... Uh, so I was there for six weeks and, and I got clean. I was clean going back to back to Dublin. And and then when I got back to Mount Joy show, I went back to Mount Joy with a pair of English prison jeans on me. A jacket I'd robbed off a fella in the building so he, um, in London, which wasn't much cop. I still have the jeans at home. They're a 28 waist, right? And they fucking wouldn't go on to me ankles now at the minute. <laughs> but um, I went home with them and... I ended up going into prison. I got five and a half years with a review after three and a half years with conditions that I done something about me problem, me drug addiction and that. And um, so I went to Mount Joy and then I just started back using again. The minute I went in, it's like... You went back like, using in Mount Joy? Yeah. Like it's, like, it's like, come here, it's like when you hang around with people that fix cars, you'll end up fixing cars. Yeah. And if you hang around with people that are taking drugs day yeah. in, day out, it was inevitable I was going to pick up then eventually I start, a few years in, I was really back to the same thing again. My mate says to me, does uh, NA meetings on of a Wednesday night up in, the, up in the church? Do you want to come up with us? And I says, no. I was just too interested in getting stoned. But one night I was stoned and I went up. Your man goes, it's great, there's fucking free cigarettes and all, you can have a cup of tea. So we went up and, and uh, I went a few times and then I, I started seeing people that I'd used with 
going to the meetings, and then I, my years kind of cocked a bit, and I opened my eyes a little bit more. And I used to be saying to them, what's the story with these meetings? You, get, you know, and they go, well, oh, it's great. And, you know, and they were telling me that they, they had a house and they had a mortgage and they drove a car. And this was fucking stuff that mm. was alien to me. None yeah. of my mates, well, they had cars, but they weren't theirs, like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were in houses, but none of them were fucking theirs either, like. You know, that, that, that stuff was alien to me. So I was attracted to that. So I remember there was a prison officer in Mount Joy, Mr. Fardell, Mark Fardell, his name is, he's, he's still in there. And my ex-parent, I used to babysit for him, and he come up to me and he says to me one day, he says, if there's anything I can do for you, he says, let me know. He says, now, I don't mean fucking bring you in, you know, a ladder or bring you in drugs or anything like that. Mm. He says, if there's anything I can do to help you, ask me. And I remember just one day, after having dinner, I just says to myself, do you know what? I fucking had enough of this. Mm. And um, I remember the door opening. I'm actually getting a little bit emotional. Yeah. Mm. And um, I thought everybody in the prison was looking at me like, you know, no one was. Do you know what I mean? And I made the walk. He was up the top of the landing. And I walked up. It was like everything was in fucking slow motion. I just says, look, I need help. And he went, no, but what do you want to do? He says, I want to get a detox. I want to go over to the medical unit. He says, right, okay. So a couple of weeks later, he come back. He says, look, you have to go for the interview. He says, just go. He says, I have you. You're in. He says, you're going to go off to this place. You're going to detox. So um, I, went, I went over. Ten of us went over. There was ten of us in the group. Um, six of them are dead. Fucking hell. Uh, three of them are still using. And um, I was the only one that got cleaned out of them all. And I remember a fella coming in from Kilmoyne and saying... If one person out of this group gets clean, um, it, the job is done. And I'm sure, like everyone else sitting there, they were all saying, oh, I'm going to get clean. Like, but I was saying, oh, I'm definitely going to get clean. Like. Mm. So then I went into the training unit and started going to NA meetings and, 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 and started trying to do the right thing. And, you know, I was really looking forward to getting out. Um, my sister used to come up and visit me regularly. My mum was living in London still at the time. She come home every now and again. My dad would drop up, and I just found that, like in most desperate situations in my life, that it was always my family that were always there for me, my so-called friends. You know, it's like that. I was so out of mind. I mean, when any of my mates was in jail, it was like fuck them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That was it. Like, yeah. um, so eventually I got out, and um, I moved back to Ballymun, and I went back to live with my sisters. I started going to meetings, and. Um, done what was suggested in the programme, 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, couldn't understand what was going on. I was, I was thinking that after the 90 meetings, you were going to say, look, we're all actually fucking using. Mm. Don't say anything to anybody. There's a party on Saturday night. <laughs> Drop up. We all go up our fucking heads. And then you go back to the meeting on Sunday. <laughs> say nothing to no one. Um, that wasn't the case, you know. So I started going to these meetings. I lived with my sister, um, who was very, very good to me. In my recovery, my ex-partner got pregnant, I think, 20 minutes after I got out of prison. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I was on a day program. I was in the ACRG, an aftercare recovery group. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Then when she got pregnant, I got a job, and I started becoming this responsible, productive member of society. And um, my sister... Um, I moved out of there, I moved in with my partner and started saving to buy a house. And then um, moved into the house, had the new new baby, Mia, uh, came along and then... Um, do you know what's amazing in your story? Um, do you know when you when that prison officer came to you and he, offered, he just let you know he was there when you wanted it? That can be... Uh, translated to family members, friends, mm. loved ones, anybody that needs help. Um, that's the, the help is there. Like, yeah. you you can't, just, you come can't, here, listen. You can't force somebody, but you just no. let them know when, when, when they're ready, you're there yeah. for them. If anybody in then, the audience has an active addict in their family or someone that's using, leave them until they come to you. Yeah. Because I'm fucking telling you something. You, you They'll can run chase. you ragged. Yeah, you They'll can, run you ragged. You, can you actually, cannot, you can't. Yeah. I just say to people, look at, do what you're doing, you know, but when you're ready to stop, there's yeah. my phone number, like, you know, and you just leave them, you know, and, and when the pain gets bad enough, I was getting a bit emotional there because I was talking um, about my sister. So my sister got diagnosed with cancer. Um, in recovery. She was, she was 44 when she died. And then... Um, Sorry for your loss. Ah, sure, come here. It was, it was 11 years ago, but it's still raw, you know? Mm. Is this the same sister, no, was the one that... Yeah, the, well, I only, there was only me and yeah. her, I'd known okay. her brothers, you know, and she was always there for me. Um, Were you in recovery when she died? Yeah. At least, you know, she got to see her recover. And, yeah, I was. Um, uh, and I was there. I remember being in the hospice and she was asking me to help her and I just felt so fucking helpless. Um, someone that had helped me all my life, um, I couldn't help her. I remember being up in the Mata Hospital with her and her feet was all dry. And I says, well, do you want me to wash your feet for you? Um, just that intimacy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just help. I just, I, we knew she was going to die, like, you know. And then eventually when she did die, um, it was just such a, such a hole in my life, mm -hmm. you know, just such an emptiness. Um, but at least she passed and she wasn't worrying about you. You yeah, were by her yeah, side. Yeah, um, so she's gone, she's gone 11 years and... You know, life, life kind of took off. I started doing the comedy then with Des Bishop, you know. We, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because Des Bishop yeah, came to Nakanahini too. Talk about something a bit more lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, yeah. Well done, Will, why? Well done. Um, so... But the, yeah. that, that, that TV show, you might remember it, Des Bishop, Joy in the Hood, he went to all the posh areas, Nakanini, yeah, Myros, yeah. Ballymun. 
Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's how Willie got into the comedy. But, but it's, it's mad, and I was saying to you earlier, the whole, that, that whole show was meant to be about me, the whole six weeks was meant to be about me getting out of prison and embarking on the world of stand-up comedy to be a comedian. Because I, I was somewhere doing an auction and he seen me and he seen it was very funny. So he got in, in touch with me. I, I kind of knew him a little bit. And I opted not to do the show because there were so many other people to think about. Like we talked about earlier, I had an employer in work. I had a young child. I had people that knew me. And my anonymity was kind of very special to me. So he says, listen, I'm not going to do it. So I don't join the whole thing. Come here. Then we went on tour with him and it was fucking great. Like, mm. staying in the Hayfield Manor, like. Fancy. <laughs> fucking, I'll tell you one thing, is a different bowl of porridge than the one in Mount Joy. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that. So, come here, it was great. You know what? It, it was amazing. And Des, come here, Des, Des is a good guy, but he's, he, he's a businessman. You know, he's, he's, he, he, he gave me a good kickstart in life. And uh, in the comedy career, and I'll always be grateful for that. And he's he's kept in touch, you know. But um, so yeah, then I then I started doing comedy, and then then I started doing a little bit of acting. I done a bit of stuff in the in the Savage Joy, and I done a bit of stuff in the Irish Pictorial, and um, just kind of got bits and pieces, and was on different kind of programs and stuff. And it was it was amazing, like you know, it was. We started a comedy club in Ballymun, and we some we'd start a Milligan and. In Ballymun, they want to fucking gig like for 400 euro. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You will not get Sarah Milligan's yeah, fucking yeah. bra for 400 euro <laughs> at the minute. Do you know what I mean? And um, I just met some really, really good people along the way. You know, we'd be probably picking the names off the floor. I, I, I ended up gigging with John Bishop, Kevin Bridges, um, you know, lots of, lots of big names. Tommy mm. Tiernan, Jason Bourne. Started doing all the comedy festivals, went to Edinburgh. All that stuff started to happen, you know. Um, What's it like walking out on stage in front of a few thousand people? It's better than taking any drug. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I still get nervous. Like, this is the mm. first live audience I've been in front of in, in 18 months. And the best looking. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> it's very easy to see why the lads actually took you on tour as well, you know. You're, you've, you've such a nice kind of energy and aura around you, you know, you're... Yeah, thank, thanks very much. My missus actually said it to me this yeah. evening, pulling into Cork. She says to me, are you nervous? Mm. And I said, I am. I says, I'm very, I'm very nervous. Um, but I'm kind of, I'm going I'm to move on. Cork, Cork has a big, a big part in my life, and I'll come on to that now at about six in the morning. And um, <laughs> now, so my father, in recovery, recovery has given me things that I thought would never give to me. So... Mm. One big thing was me dad. I had this horrible, horrible, toxic relationship with him. Wanted to kill the man all my life. So I done a bit of walk around that. As I said, I went back. I found out where my dad came from, where his family came from, a family of 16 kids um, in a two-bedroom flat. I, I had this vision of when I come into recovery and me and my dad sitting by a lake fishing and that, that wasn't it. But what I got was great. You know, I got an understanding. I got to be able to talk to him on on a, on a level and find out about him and find out about him growing up, and um, and I loved him. We ended up loving the man, you know. <laughs> and he got fucking cancer, um, fucking hell. Um, he ended up getting cancer, and and he he um, he died in two thousand and sixteen. Um, and when he died. 
in, in the hospice in Hardell's Cross. It was just me and him. There was nobody else. And um, I remember just holding him and feeling this fucking love for this man, you know, who I realized through all his faults and all his fucking defects of character that he'd done the fucking best that he could for me with the tools that he had in life. Mm. And I just held him and I says, look, I fucking love you. Mm. And then... Um, he passed on and I fucking miss him. I really, really miss him no, terribly. There's you know? something very poetic about the whole lot of that. No, the fact that you were in recovery to be at your sister's side. The fact that you had made amends with your father and you were able to care for him in his last days. Mm. If these events had happened when you were in addiction in London... Oh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. If, if my sister was dying and my dad was dying and there was a morphine pump beside them, mm. it'd have been fucking getting ripped off the wall. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the, the gods on the street. Yeah. Like, the growth that you have, like it shows the growth within you as a person to yeah. be able to sit with your dad in his, his last days as well. Yeah, it's, it's mad. And at that, that time, just before he died, I, I'd split up with my partner after 22 years. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Um, I got through out of the house where I lived. And I ended up moving to Cork. Um, well, not moving, I, me, the boss. I worked for a crowd down in Cork called Martin Scaffolding on uh, Carrigaline. Um and I ended up walking all around Ring of Skiddy and, you know, all around Cork. And I have to say, I come down here to Cork, and I'm not just saying it. The people in fucking Cork welcomed me with open arms and were really, really good fucking people and really special people. And I'll be forever grateful. Even where I stayed up in um, Ballincollig, which is kind of twinned with Ballymun, and... Um, Ballancolic was all right. There's some fucking gang down there, the RPG or whatever. The CPGs. That's them, yeah. Cast Castle Bell. Just, the minute they heard I was from Ballymoon, they used to fucking hide, like, you know. <laughs> um, no, so I, I ended up in Ballancolic uh, and then I ended up moving up to the posh part up in Douglas. Oh, and I used to be going gosh, into yeah. Denny, he's into the gym. And, and do you know what? It was, it was what I really thought at that part of my life, at that time of my life, was a horrible, horrible fucking time. You know, your father was dying, relationship was at a breaking up, um, with two kids, and it was just, I was kind of going, what do, what do I do? Like, so I just recommitted myself to doing what I done when I got clean forced, you know? Mm. Start going back to meetings, got a new sponsor, start writing steps, start kind of, you know, kind of trying to take my mind off everything else that was going on, like, you know? Um, then eventually the house that I'd bought in Laytown, I ended up moving back into that house when I went back to Dublin eventually after 10 months. That's by the beach, isn't it? Yeah, right beside the sea, yeah. And um, I remember going into the house on my own when the tenants had moved out and standing in the hallway. All I had was a table and chairs and a fucking bed upstairs and I was going, right, I've got, I, I, I could have cried about it, but I just says, look, this is a blank canvas. This is a mm. new chapter in my life. Two weeks later, I'd done a gig. <laughs> this is mad. And there was a prize of a double bed in it. <laughs> and I said to myself, I'll buy a fucking few tickets and see can I get this bed right. And I never won the bed. <laughs> but the fella that won the bed wasn't there. And I was talking to his mate. He says, my mate's had to win in that bed. He says, ask him, does he want to sell the fucking bed? So we rang him and gave me the phone. I says, listen, I says, I'm the comedian that was doing the gig. He says, I need a bed. <laughs> he says, me, you fucking telling a joke. And I says, no, I wish I was like, you know. Mm. He says, will you take 50 quid for the bed? No, just chance of me arm. Like, he goes, yeah, give him the 50 quid. 
So I remember getting a rope and tying it to the car and driving from Dublin up the fucking Laytown, up the motorway, and the mattress was flapping like this. But eventually I, 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 I put a home, you know, I put a house around me, and my main priority was always my family, my kids. You know what I mean? My kids have never seen me drunk, have never, you know, seen me lose my head. I've completely broken the chain of what my father came from, you know? Completely, like my kids, yeah. still to this day, I, I hugged them, I kissed them, mm. I loved them, you know, um, unconditionally. Um, sometimes I want to choke them, but <laughs> apparently you're not allowed to do that anymore. Most, <laughs> <laughs> Most so, yeah, so life moved on and I, I, I ended up living back in Laytown and then after a while, things were dead in the water with my relationship and I ended up meeting another girl who we just met mm. um, there and... Um, Um, I'm not going to start crying now. Um, come here, I was very lucky. Mm. And she doesn't have cancer. Um, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually met, I've met the fucking woman in my dreams. Like, do you know what I mean? I really, really have. Yeah. Um, There's Brownie points. There yeah, no, do you know what? She, she knows that. I don't need to be sitting here in front of a hundred people to yeah. say that. I sit down and I tell her. She gets my madness. You know, we get each other. We, we get on like a house on fire. Mm. Um, and she's fucking, she's a really, really big part of my life, and she's like my best mate as well, mm. and we just have a fucking laugh, like, you know? I just want to say, mate, the woman of my dreams told Jiggy Jiggy the other time. We'd have been right, we'd have been roasted there, yeah. we'd have been jumping, like, who's fucking serious? Yeah, and then, then, then I ended up, I ended up doing, um, I, this, this fella got in contact with me on, on Twitter, one day I got a message on Twitter, well, I got a lot of messages on Twitter, but this message in particular came along and it says, uh, Hoi, my name is Phelan Cannon, because that was his name. And he said, uh, we're doing a play. We're wondering, would you be interested in getting involved in doing this play with us? And I went, yeah, I'll go along and I'll, I'll see us and I'll have a chat with you and see what the story is. So I went in to meet this fella. He says, look, we're a production company called Broken Talkers. We're doing a piece on prisons and addiction. And uh, we spoke to the music teacher in Mount Joy. They went into the music teacher in Mount Joy in, in, um, in the training unit and they said, if you could give us one name of a person to do this play, because it was meant to be initially a one-man play. He said to the, to the music teacher, who would you get to do the play? He said, I got a fella called Willie White, he says. He says, he's a fucking great lad. He's got a great story. He says, he's a stand-up comedian. He says, try him. He says, that's who I'd ask to do it. So I went in. And I seen this fella and seen, uh, there was another guy there as well called Gary Keegan. And I went in to see them. And I thought when I went in that the fucking play would be written and everything was done. And I just have to get the lines, you know. Mm. And, and, and But it wasn't. It was, a, it was a really, really special journey. So they had a professor of criminologist, uh, criminology, Dr. Catherine Cox, who'd been in Mount Joy for 15 months doing work with lifers. The two lads had been in there. They got all this stuff together. And um, then they started taking my story and amalgamating it with that stuff and the stuff in the prison. Then eventually Gary, who was one of the guys who was in the play, he read in one day for where I was meant to be doing the play on my own. So he ended up, it, it, was, it was just beautiful the way it happened. So he ended up coming into the play. So it ended up two of us in the play. And it aspired that he was an ex-victim of crime over in London. He, he'd, got a, uh, he'd been mugged. So it was basically him telling his story as an ex-victim of crime. 
and me telling my story as an ex-prisoner. So we got this play together. It was called The Examination. And we we toured it and we done the Dublin Fringe Festival. We done the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We, you know, went around the country and that. And then there was awards for the Dublin Fringe Festival. And my partner, Linda, says to me on the Sunday morning, I'd I'd been nominated for best, Best Actor at the Dublin Fringe Festival. And we'd been nominated for Best Production. So she said to me on the Sunday morning, are we, are we going to go into this thing in Wheelands? And I went, Asher, fuck it, we'll go in. But I genuinely handed my heart, had no idea. Like, so I went in and anyway, and they, and they called out, I won't fucking best actor out of 700 people. Right? Congratulations, Bula thing, uh, <laughs> um, And we won best production as well, for that as well. And I remember going up and giving the speech, and the speech was basically saying, you know, for people that are in addiction or people mm. that are trying to get clean, that we're not all fucking scumbags and mm. there's a good person underneath the layers, you know, un- underneath us if you really want to, if you really want to look for yourself, you know. And that's exactly kind of why we started the podcast, you know, mm. to so, let people have their stories and, you know, to create a bit of awareness that it's not so black and white. The good people are on the outside, mm. the bad people are on the inside. Yeah. You know yourself, really. Yeah. A lot of people in prison are victims themselves, you know, victims of trauma and abuse and poverty and violence and stuff, you know. Yeah, we we ended up um, we ended up winning then the Irish Times Best Production Award as well. So the play just kind of took off and we were booked in to go to a theatre festival in Paris, a theatre festival in Norway. All these things was booked. I'd, um, a lawyer working on the case to try to get me into Australia because unfortunately with my criminal yeah. convictions and the person, you know, my past, which is... I mean, the last time mm. I was in trouble with the fucking guards was 1997, like, and that still tarnishes mm. my past for me going to, a, you know, going into the States and that. Now, come here, I can get on to the online form and go, no, 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 I was never in trouble. I know loads of lads that are in recovery who've been in trouble, who've got into the States, but I was going on a walking visa. Yeah. So I couldn't do it that way, you know? Mm. So, look, we, 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 we'll, we'll kind of see what happens. So I think that's something that we're going to face too, you know? When yeah. we do our big US tour, Timmy, <laughs> we'll have to go in through Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be brought in on board. <laughs> But listen to me, what's the plans for the future? Have any live shows coming up? Um, it's like when you rang me up and asked me what my dirty was like, there's fuck all in it. Yeah. I'm, bu- I'm booked in for the laughter lounge I am for uh, for Christmas. Apart from that, there's nothing really happening. The, the, well, the, the play got the green light for the, from the Irish Arts Council. So we're gone again next year. Brilliant. So that, that's all going to happen. So that's, that's kind of what happened. When we were booked for all this stuff, COVID came in. Mm. You know, like, and it, it was mad. Like, this, this year was just, like, a big year. It was, like, I was 20 years clean. I was 50. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a grandfather for the second time. Congratulations. Um, you know, so it was, it, was a, it was a really, it was a really, really, it was a really good year. And, and I suppose, like, we've been all through fucking dark times at the minute. And, I mean, the, the thing about this podcast in particular and some podcasts like it is that, we're all now different than anybody else. We all suffer with our mental health. Do you know what I mean? We all find it difficult sometimes to say to people, listen, I'm not, I'm not all right, like, you know what I mean? And, and it's, it's like that saying what they use, isn't it? It's okay not to be okay, like. Mm. 
Mm. You know, if you're not all right, just tell someone that you're not all right and talk about it and get on with it. There's, there's, there's too many people, you know, taking their own lives and there's too many people doing the wrong things in life because they feel that it's a pride thing, especially with young men, like, yeah. you know, so... Um, well, it's, a great, it's a great point. And, yeah. like, I went, I'm going to finish up on that because I want to get a few questions off the audience. And yeah, cool. You're a great talker, but... Um, <laughs> One Are thing we I, finished? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, hope, I, hope, I hope we get some good questions, but um, one thing when you were talking there, you know, it was like, um, you know, we don't look back on our past looking to blame anybody, you know, and no. Gabamata said to us, he said, like, trauma doesn't begin with anybody, you know, there's nobody to blame, like, there's a, there's a context to your father's life, your mother's life, yeah. their parents, their parents, their parents, but the key is to be aware of it. And we'll all heal together. And you're after healing now. And you give your children such a great chance. You know, and you're, you're a great man. It's my first time meeting you tonight. Yeah. Such a great energy off you, as Timmy says. You know, and you know, you're a good man. You're going to go do good things. And I can't wait to see the live show. I hope you come to Cork. And, um, oh, we will definitely. And yeah. we'll definitely be coming up to Ballymun because um, we have a few guests up there. Mm. And uh, we've got a big following up there, the yeah. Ballymun uh, task force and all that. Like, and but, you um, know, it's very important as well to mention as well. It's great to see a man to show emotion as well. You know, I see. Yeah, it, like, I'm just a big fucking teddy bear, uh, Timmy. But, but, but you know what? For somebody who has experienced a lot of violence in their life growing up, you know, like yourself and mm. my own life. Uh, to show any form of emotion was the last thing I could do because when you show emotion, you're showing how vulnerable you are, you know, to be picked on a little bit more. And it's, it's actually great to see somebody just cry, you know. Yeah. It's, and it shows other men that it's okay to show their emotions as well because we live in, in times that are actually changing. Like 30 years ago, you could never show emotion. If, you're, if you were a little boy and he fell or something like that, you tell him get up, and if he started crying, if he was genuinely hurt, give him something to cry about. Yeah, you mm. know. So it it's, it's just great to see that. Oh yeah, good that brilliant. Mm. I wonder, does anybody any comments or questions for Willie, me, or Timmy? I, there's no mic for us, so just show the way. Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Just <laughs> a good question. Do you know, I suppose when when people when people actually wake up from being caught up in addiction and they see that there's another life there, you know, without crime, drugs, and violence, um, you just gain this internal drive that just keeps pushing you forward. And you start creating with all that energy that you used to get drugs, to rob, all these different things, you know. Um, and that's that's the way it is for me. But it's also wanting to be a better person, you know, a better father, better husband to my wife, you know. Um, and just to, to help as many people. Like, I'd be quite, quite uh, emotional now as well, like Willie. And I would have to fight back the tears as well most of the time. But when I look at myself being like that... I can really look deep within myself and see that young child that could have been but is becoming now, you know, that young child that really had so much to offer but because of my own circumstances, I wasn't able. But And it's just it's just, just keep moving forward and help as many people as you possibly can yeah. to get into recovery and just share it. Just share it. Yeah, it's exactly what you said. It's mm. What motivates me is just trying to help someone else. 
you know, the help that was given to me, I tried to give to others. Mm. You know, and there's no, there's no hopeless cases, like, you know. Mm. I heard a fella saying a great thing once. He says, I was at an NA meeting and he says, for every nut that walks in the door, we've a spanner to fill it, like, you know. <laughs> and it's very, very true. Like, I've seen, I've seen hopeless, like, I mean, I was a hopeless case. You mm. were hopeless cases. Yeah. I mean, there's hope for the hopeless people. It's like, Failure isn't falling down, like it's staying down. Mm. I mean, if you've got the ability to get up out of the gutter and get back up on your feet, like, I mean, I was walking through the city today looking at, you know, there's addiction in every city, like, it's not just Cork City, it's mm. Dublin as well, it's all over the place. And I mean, all them people that you kind of turn your head to or get on your phone to when you see or whatever, they all belong to somebody, yeah. you know, and probably suffer with trauma. I just got lost somewhere along the way. But I mean, when the, when, when the time is right. But you know, you know, when you look at them people and some people look at them and think like, oh, did I have to give up? But there's a tremendous amount of resilience in them too. The fact yeah. that they're still soldiering on in spite of everything they're experiencing and have experienced, they're still alive. They're not looking to throw themselves into the river. Mm. You know, they're not... The drugs is probably keeping them alive at the moment, you know. But to answer your question, what motivates me to keep going, I suppose, is when you just build momentum, you know, when you get when you when you set out in tasks and you start getting results and you know, um, when we started out doing this um and then people started watching it and we get comments and last week there um I called up to a seventy three year old super fan in Herbie Road, you know. She pulled my mum up by Super Value and says, no, I love the podcast. She watches it religiously every Saturday morning. And uh, that's great motivation. Yeah. You know, why, why would we dream of stopping? We got an email from a fellow from Mayfield the other day. Um, he's after been watching the podcast in prison. And he emailed me the other day saying that uh, he was looking for meetings. He's looking for a list. He's looking to go to treatment. That's the motivation for us. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like We bring this to... You know, for people from the age of 73 up in Harvey Road, people in Cork Prison, it's, you know, it's helping a lot of people, so that's a big motivation for us. Anybody else? Me ma'am, I knew she was going to ask a question. <laughs> Did you put the washing out? <laughs> you never brushed your teeth. <laughs> oh, manky mode. <laughs> She's definitely your mother. Yeah, definitely my mother. She can fucking talk as well, I can tell you that. <laughs> but you know what, Magella, to answer that, I suppose <laughs> what was coming into my head is we started off as two people. Now, James is all about policy. I have, hadn't a clue about policy until he started talking it, basically. But um, the numbers of people are growing, you know. We started off as two voices talking to each other. Now it's a collective of people and people are really starting to talk about it. So that's that's what we're doing. And when the group gets big enough and noticed, then policies will start changing. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think, like, if we had Micheál Martin up on the stage here, it doesn't matter what we... Even if Micheál Martin agreed with everything we said, there's a whole civil service behind him that he needs to convince. So I suppose what we do... The other day we got an email from this lady. She was outdoor dining in Cork City. And this guy was around um, 
begging at the tables, you know. So she gave him a few quid, and uh, he said to her, he says, um, ever since the lads started the Two Nories podcast, people are a lot kinder to us. So that just shows us that there's a collective consciousness coming from this, and I think that's the best thing we can do, because that has to filter the more people that we can get to change their perception, it's better than talking to Michal Martin if his constituents are saying it to him. You know, so that's kind of indirectly will affect policy eventually, I think. Yeah, just just to say, it was a very good question as well. And I personally think I'd, I've got a mate of mine. It's, it's mad because I was talking about going into primary schools before kids make that switch to secondary school. Because I think when they go into first years, that's when all the development kind of starts. But if you can go into fifth class or sixth class, I grew up in an area in Ballymun where, believe it or not, where a, where a prison governor from my area. So I was thinking of trying to get a programme together with me and him that we go in and say, look, we're both from the same areas. He ended up becoming the governor of Mount Joy Prison and I ended up becoming the prisoner. And kind of just saying to kids, look, it's, it's a lottery with people becoming addicted to drugs. You know, one person might be able to take a line of coke once a month and that's good. And then just that one person takes a line of coke and just has that addictive gene in them or whatever it is and just sends them completely off. So I think definitely something needs to be done for it. Regarding policy, I don't know. But skills, primary skills, something should be done by the government to, to catch them before they make the switch over to secondary and just try try help them, you know? Give them a bit of understanding. I'm not talking about going in and frightening the lives out of them or anything like that. Go in with a good story, someone that has a bit of experience, myself or yourselves, and mm. just tell them, look, this this is what could happen. Are you are you willing to take that chance, like, you know? Mm. In terms of, like, it's a lottery, you know, if you take drugs and you end up in, in addiction, to a certain extent it is, but you're more likely to win that lottery if you're from Ballymun or Ochnahini or fucking Mayfield or, you know, no offence to anybody from those mm. areas, but, you know, people there's way over representation in treatment centres and prisons for people from disadvantaged areas. So, um, last question or comment? Mm. What? Well done. Well done. Mm. All the boss. What, what's your name? Just for people that didn't hear you, in summary, Peter is in recovery almost three years now. Um, in a good place, has his family next to him. It's his first time coming to the podcast. He's Yeah, but you've been diagnosed. You've been in this since October, and everybody here will send you healing energy over the weekend. And look, um, thanks for coming and best of luck with everything. Thanks, Peter. Look, we'll... we'll one more. One more. We've three minutes. One more. Go on, Willie. Tell us your best joke about cock people, Willie. Go on. <laughs> You're fucking joking, boy. Okay, I'm going to tell you a joke. I'll tell you a, a couple of jokes. So... We've got three minutes. And what about Pally Fihan? <laughs> uh, why did the lifeguard not save the hippie? It was too far out, man. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to give you the opportunity, Roy. So if you want to hear, a, cl if you hear a, a clean joke or a dirty joke, Roy. Dirty. So if you want to hear, a, if you wanna hear a, a dirty joke, put your hands up. It's kind of half and half, so I'm going to go with the clean one, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here's, here's the clean joke. So this fella is, is driving a bus, right? And he's heading down to West Cork. He's heading down to Clonakilty. I'll bring fucking Cork into it, right? So he's heading down to Clonakilty and he's had to come from the city in Cork. But he has 56 deaf and dumb people on the bus with him, right? And he's had to been driving. He's had to collect a load of them up in Dublin and he's on the way back down. He's bollocks. He's, he goes into this little pub just outside uh, McCroon there, you know? It's Monday afternoon. It's fucking lashing rain. And he goes in. He sits your man behind the counter. He goes, eh, how's it going? Because he was from Dublin. And uh, <laughs> he says, listen, I, I have a coach outside. I have 56 deaf and dumb people on it. Probably more carry than fucking cock. Or whales. Or whales, yeah. You've got the coach outside. <laughs> so he says, eh, can I bring them in for a drink? Like, I need to get a sleep. Your man goes, not a bother. He was from Dublin, the fellow behind the bar, you know. He goes, not a bother. He says, bring them all in. He says, there's no one in the fucking pub, like, you know. Your man, the cork fella says to him, he says, well, listen, he says, I've got to tell you something. Your man goes, what? He says, if for any fucking reason, you see one of them, or any of them, standing there going like this, He says, I want you to come straight out to the coach and wake me up. I'll be on the back of the coach. Your man goes, all right. He says, well, how will I know what drinks do you want? He goes, fucking simple. He'll just point at them. They're top shelf forever. Your man goes, bring them fucking in. Cork fella goes out. He gets them all into the pub. They're in the pub about 20 minutes. Your man has never made as much money in all his fucking life, right? The, list, the, the jukebox on it. I don't know where the fucking jukebox was on. They're playing pool. They're pointing at this. They're pointing at that. Drinking. Next of all, one of them goes up. He goes like that. Points at the Guinness. Dublin fella goes to pull the fucking point. There's nothing in it. He says, oh, I better go down to the, the cellar. Just as he's going down to the cellar, he looks over in the corner. And there's a fella standing there like that. He goes, fuck this, I'll never make this much money again. Goes down to the cellar, changes the keg of Guinness. He comes back up. The fucking whole lot of them, every one of them is all standing there like that. He goes, oh, fuck this. Runs out to the coach in the car park, goes down to the back seats, wakes your man up. He says, quick, quick, quick. Your man goes, what the fuck is wrong? He's quick. Get into the pub. Goes in, there's the fucking whole lot of them. The bus driver goes, oh, for fuck's sake. Dublin fella goes, what, what, what's wrong? He goes, they're after starting the fucking sing song. We never get them out of here. <laughs> Very good. We leave it there, Willie, thanks. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.